Hey, Ryan here. Does your company have a commercial or industrial IoT project coming down the pipe? Reach out to Vary and let our world-class specialists in hardware, software, data science, and design bring it to life. We managed to get the sensors out the door, which was a great hurrah moment. But because we were under massive time pressure and didn't have many opportunities to test... Budget overruns, brick devices, data breaches, building connected products is hard. Welcome to Over the Air, sharp, unfiltered conversations with executives about their IoT journeys, the mistakes they made, the lessons they learned, and what they wish they'd known when they started. I'm your host, Ryan Prosser. Welcome back to Over the Air, IoT Connected Devices and the Journey. My name is Ryan Prosser, CEO of Vary, and today we're joined by Brandon Van Blurk, CEO at Tether, and we're going to be talking about the anatomy of a hardware product recall. Brandon, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for inviting me, Ryan. Pretty excited to talk to you. Um, yeah, we've got some interesting things to discuss today, for sure. Definitely. So before we get started, for those that don't know Tether, a little background. So we're ultimately a tech company that consists of about 75% software engineering, 25% hardware engineering. Um, our mission is to improve health, efficiency, and sustainability of buildings through connected IoT devices. And just to illustrate specifically what you guys do, what are some of your flagship products um, that you guys produce? Specifically, talk about some of the hardware products. Yeah, so, I mean, we, we started the company by developing an indoor environmental quality sensor we call the EnviroQ, which is a uh, Sigfox-connected um, indoor environmental quality sensor that monitors temperature, relative humidity, carbon dioxide, light, sound, and atmospheric pressure. Um, the benefit of our device over, I guess, some other competitors is we are predominantly battery-operated units. And, of course, because we use a low-power wider network in Sigfox, we, um, we can install our sensors anywhere without having any reliance on the building's utilities, which is really appealing to some of our customers. One of the things that I love about Tether is, is such an interesting origin story. And and I wonder if you'd share a little bit about uh, what you guys have been through. You didn't start with this idea, actually quite a different origin story, a couple of pivots along the way. Can you talk a little bit about Tether's origins? Yeah, well, we started, um, we being myself and my co-founder, Jordan Clist, we started with a failed Bitcoin business where we built a Bitcoin payment processing uh, system in 2013, real early days of crypto. And that didn't work just because we didn't understand the market well enough. We thought the technology was awesome, which is a lot of uh, a lot of problems that entrepreneurs have, especially in the tech industry. They think their products are amazing, but they don't have product market fit. And, uh, and we realized we didn't have product market fit when no one was spending Bitcoin through our system. And we, we closed Cryptex down, which was the name of the company. But what we realized through that origin, uh, through that origin company was that we had the foundings of an amazing team, which is what you need to make a successful business. And uh, we decided we were going to do something else. Let's, let's create a different business. So we then, instead of making the same problem with not finding that product market fit, what we decided to do was to build a business where we would find the market first and then build the product. And we did that through a company we called Nilo. And the idea of Nilo was to go into organizations that didn't have money to build um, solutions, hardware and software solutions, uh, but they had a specific problem that they, were, that they were needing to solve that we saw some scale in. And then we would agree to build that solution for free in lieu of a 
SaaS services agreement over time. So essentially, we build the product with this customer as a partner, as it were. And then as soon as the product's ready for release to solve their problem, they start paying us a SaaS fee, which then recoups the cost of the of the build. And then the, the IP belongs to us and we can then sell it to a wider market. So um, there was a number of different projects that we did through, through Nilo, some that didn't really work because they just didn't fit the mold. But the one that did, which actually led to the founding of, of Tether, was we're looking at building a tool that would automate a green building certification process in New Zealand called Homestar. And this was you know, 2016 um, in the Homestar process. I think you guys have something similar in Lead or Bream um, in the US. And we we're going to build a process to, to automate that because at that stage, it was, it was very manual. I think today it still is. Uh, and... Without going into too much detail, the project ended up falling over six months down the line, and my team was pretty unhappy about that because we put a lot of time into R&D, into the platform itself. And like good entrepreneurs, we decided to take the IP that we'd created through that process, try and find another gap in the market, another problem in the market that that sort of ember could fuel, and then then created what what ended up becoming Tether. Uh, And the link between this green building certification platform and ultimately post-occupancy evaluation building performance, that link is where we kind of saw the the gap in the market. So that's the million dollar phrase, gap in the market. Uh, here at Very, we call it product market fit, but same idea. You know, this idea that what should we build and why, to use your word, where are the gaps in the marketplace that are underserved, where there's a customer need? What did that process look like for you guys? And and uh, like, where did dumb luck meet the scientific method? Because everybody, it seems, has some combination of both. Yeah, look, I mean, there was a lot of dumb luck, but also a hell of a lot <laughs> of conversation, right? So um, I am someone who just talks to everybody that wants to talk to me. So, you know, I'll, I'll go into a, into a networking event and I'll just want to talk to as many people as possible. But with the intention of trying to figure out what they're trying to do, like what is this individual, what is this company trying to achieve? And is there genuinely a problem worth solving or is it just someone trying to sell their product to me, right? And there's a, there's a skill involved in this. Like you have to try and figure out where is their problem worth solving and, and how... Um, how can you get to a point where you're building some some value that you can start to iteratively design on top of it? I mean, no one is ever going to build the end product today, right? You need to find one particular thing that you can solve in a short period of time to start generating revenue. And then that acts as a foundation and you can start to scale on top of that. And for us, that little gap in the market was this this, this thing called the this uh, performance gap, right? The performance gap of buildings where you have this modeled output in green building certificates or just uh, in any type of design or architectural phase. You have this desired performance in terms of how a building should react to an occupant's behavior, whether that's through thermal comfort levels or energy consumption or whatever. And then when you put people in the building, the building responds in a completely different way. And those that designed it you know, sort of scratch their heads and go, well, why did that happen? And there's never really enough data that's that's good enough or contextualized enough to be able to go back to the model and improve it based on post-occupancy. And this is the gap that we saw is in building a tool for the certification process, we realized that the frustration wasn't in the certification process, 
the frustration was in not understanding whether certification was actually worth its weight in gold, whether they were actually achieving the results that the certification wanted them to, to achieve. And that's where we saw the gap. Um, and we took it by just creating a solution, a one-step solution, which was an indoor environmental quality center to start to provide the data that our customers needed to close that loop. And then, that, and then from that point, we then used that as a, as a trampoline or a springboard into building um, what Tether is today, which is far more comprehensive. So I think a lot of entrepreneurs or entrepreneurs or people in the in, just in tech generally that are looking for product market fit you have a lot of product marketers out there um some of whom I, I think would only admit in the quiet moments of the night they've never actually found product market fit even though this is their profession you know to try to zero in on this and it seems like there's this fallacy but maybe i don't know maybe it, it was true for you guys that like there's this actual clicking sound you know like boom we got it what, what did it look like for you in that moment where you said, my God, there's a gap in the marketplace. It's something we're good at. It's valuable. Let's go. That's a really interesting question because I still don't think we have product market fit because the size of the fit keeps increasing, right? Like I felt like we had product market fit when I won my first multi-hundred, you know, hundred thousand dollar plus contract at the very beginning of the business with having no product, right? So I went, and I, I won this huge deal, which basically gave Tether, uh, gave me an, an opportunity to go, wow, there's something here. If someone's willing to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on a, on a solution that I'm pitching, and I don't even have the pitch, the, the product, then something's there. And then once we built the product and we started to you know, um, deploy it, we worked with the customer and our customers to start to build on top of it and top of it until you get to a point where you're going, I need, I need a bigger market. And in order to get a bigger market, I need more product. I need more features. And so you constantly have to grow. And as you grow, you, you want more, right? You want to, you know, want to go global domination. You want your product to be better. You want more people to, to get involved. You want to move from early adopters more into the, that middle and laggard type phase of, of the business. So there's different phases to what you're talking about. And I've had multiple clicks along the way. So I've had product market fit at the very beginning. I believed because of these big customers that came on board and I knew that we were solving problems for them. I had another product market fit, uh, which I can talk about later in a new product that we developed about six months ago called COVID Care, which uses our indoor environment quality center to work out uh, the risk of COVID and other airborne viral transmission. Um, and I knew that I had product market fit there because we just had this influx of customers um, come to us and go, we want this product, we want this product. And that's hitting a wave, a new cycle wave, right? Like, I mean, I'm not sure if you've ever been part of this surge where you feel like your product just hits the market at the right time, at the right place and the right price point where you're just sitting back. You don't have to do anything. You're, you're going, I don't have enough stock. I, can, I can't actually service this market. It's too big right now. Um, and, and then you get a whole bunch of other problems. The business starts to creak and we can go into some of those things. But um, it's a feeling. It's a feeling like you're like you're, if anybody surfs out there, like when you catch a wave and you just feel the wave take you and there's nothing you can really do, the wave's got you now, right? And and you're just along this path. That's kind of what it feels like to me when when you when a market reaches that product market fit, it feels like that surge on your back that's just impossible to, to stop. You, you're either getting dunked by the wave or you're surfing it. So now let's hard pivot from tether can do no wrong to... Uh, 
there's times as entrepreneurs when we can do no right. So you guys have shipped product and it's like something has happened out in the wild. I know from talking with you previously, uh, but I want to kind of tease this story out. Recall time, you know, so you guys need to flash firmware. You need to go put boots on the ground in an extremely difficult, probably one of the most difficult uh, time periods in, in human history to go be putting a strange person in another person's home to flash firmware. Tell us what happened. And, and you know, right now, imagine you're speaking to, you know, folks that work at a hardware company that half of them is trying to prevent this and half of them is in it right now, you know, and they're wondering, what can I learn about how to prevent what you're about to talk about? And half of them want to know, how can I best execute the soup that I'm already in? Sure. Okay. So um, just f first off, I don't know if it would ever have been pre preventable because of the time pressure that I was under, right? But let's give a bit of context so your listeners know what we're talking about. So I Tether was founded on winning a, a massive contract with a state housing organization here in New Zealand um, called Housing New Zealand, um, now called Kaingora. And we won this, this pilot project and we won it based on a demo, right? A demo of a product that existed conceptually but didn't really exist in production and when we won the contract we had five months to develop um, an onboarding experience a software platform and our hardware which uh, you know in talking mechanical design full pcb design sensor selection firmware written the entire thing uh, and we needed to get 750 units out the door and installed into people's houses which was a tall ask a tall feat right um we managed to get the sensors out the door, which was a, which was a great hurrah moment. But because we were under massive time pressure and didn't have uh, many opportunities to test, once those sensors were out there, we were predicted to have three years worth of battery life on those sensors because they are battery-operated um, LPWAN-connected pieces of hardware. And that three-year battery life cycle was really important to our customer because you don't want to be changing batteries every five or six months, especially in a state housing or, you know, a, a, a example. And once those devices were installed and we started getting the data back, we realized that the CO2 sensor on that um, device was just absolutely smashing our battery. And it was looking like we would get six months or maybe even less on some of our deployments, which meant um, that I had to get on a plane and basically fly down to two smaller cities in, in New Zealand and hand flash 750 devices over the course of three days. These devices had to be recalled. Um, I was sitting in hotel rooms with boxes of devices piled up on the kitchen counter, dismantling the casing and then literally holding down a prong onto the PCB board and, and flashing custom firmware to try and squeeze an extra, you know, six to seven months worth of battery life out of the device so we could at least get a year. And uh, and that time, that sort of threw me into this whole world of, of hardware engineering and the complexities and difficulty of, of hardware engineering. Uh, and that was probably our first biggest f failure or lesson, I would say, um, and the only way we could have we could have prevented it was just more testing, right? We would have had to do a lot more testing in field with our devices to understand that that's how they performed. But because we had five months to to design everything from scratch, we it was the biggest. Um, I don't know if you know YOLO as a term. You only live once moment we've um, we've ever had. Definitely. And uh, luckily, our customer was. 
understanding enough that as long as we wore the cost, which we did, we wore the cost of basically everything, then they were happy to just help us along the way um, and help us grow. Yeah, it seems like people are a lot more forgiving when the manufacturer is willing to eat the cost. It's uh, when there's some fuzz on that peach that things go sideways, you know, and at, at 700 units, I suppose you could just sort of brute force that at 700,000 units, that may have been an existential cost for the, for the company. Yeah. If you have 700,000 units, I mean, you haven't tested your hardware sufficiently, you've got bigger problems. So a follow-up question. So you're out there, you're flashing these units. What lessons can you share? Okay, so you, you want to contract, things moved quickly. That's probably its own lesson there. You know, like hardware is hard. D- would you agree that, or I, I guess I should ask, how best to phrase the lesson there um, when it seems like the original sin was, it sin may be too strong of a word, but like the 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 things were put in a, higher risk situation when you were handed this extremely compressed timeline that involved hardware manufacturing and almost definitely, you know, that's going to come at the cost of testing, right? Like is the lesson here, don't sacrifice the time for folks to be able to do some QA or what lessons would you share for the folks out there that themselves have 10 weeks before this like unexpected huge win hardware contract hits? This may be a strange lesson, but I, I, I think never say no in a startup environment, right? You want to get your business off the ground and you want to get your, the, the idea of your product validated, right? So as long as the, the, the value that they can extract is there, then getting the hardware and software and firmware sorted, you can do that over time. So never, never say no to a business, to a deal that can help you grow your business. Uh, but also make sure you have humility and also that you realize that things will inevitably go wrong. You know, your, your, your podcast has God knows how many examples of, of issues like this where companies and founders have found themselves in hot water and have had to dig themselves out. And those that do end up becoming successful and those that don't end up failing. But it is inevitability, right? So there's, there's uh, a honesty that you need to have with yourself that you need to do everything you can to get the deal done, but you have to get the deal done. And if you just don't manage to get it done, then you've got to start again, right? You've got to go back to the, go back to the drawing blocks um, and try and find something that, that works. The relationship with the customer is also really important. Letting them know that this is you know, that you're not providing the all singing, dancing, shining solution, but it is something that's new, right? So I let our customer know what was going on. They knew the the stage of business we were in. I wasn't saying, hey, we're bringing the apple of IoT for houses um, because we'd be, you know, over-promising and under-delivering and that's also a really bad customer experience. So bringing bringing any partner, customer on board as if they were a partner for your business and helping them build your solution with you makes them feel like they have ownership of the solution as well, right? So in, in some respects, uh, my initial customer was helping me troubleshoot my problems and also on board and board with me, even though it was super painful, really expensive, great school fees, right? Having a customer that helps you to iron out your problems and are willing to work with you is a really good thing. Not everyone has that luxury. Um, I was lucky enough to have that luxury. 
Treat the customer like a partner. Do you think that scales? I mean, it feels like that's critically important early on and as quickly as possible, you probably want to move to just a more transactional model. Has that been you guys' experience? 100%. I mean, you're not, you're not going to unfortunately scale uh, on that model and you shouldn't, right? You should use those initial phases. And again, I'm not sure what phases of business your, your um, listeners are in, but if you're in that early stage startup, you know, you're in that seed, you're trying to find product market fit, you're trying to figure out where you're going to be able to create value. Bringing, bringing customers on board and seeing them as partners is absolutely imperative to try and work out what that scale model actually looks like. And once you've nailed the user experience, the product, you understand, you know, what your pricing models and things are, then it's rinse and repeat. You can, you can turn it into something automated and, and start to scale that way. Treating your customer the virtual customer, the one that's at arm's length now, as if they were that in, that 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 sort of early stage partner that you had at the beginning of the of the development cycle. So I, I've just written down some key takeaways here. It feels like one of the first ones is steering hard into difficult truths. So you guys had a, a totally different business initially, and you're looking at this, you and your co-founder, and you're saying this doesn't have legs. This is not going to play. Um, it, it feels like the second key takeaway is that, and we, I certainly am a deep believer in this, but the path to product market fit, the the path to finding these mar- these gaps in the marketplace involves talking to lots of customers. You know, it feels like the thing, if, if there was a connective tissue between the vast majority of companies that don't make it are products that fail. It's just the lack of customer conversations and really listening to the answers. Um, the third one, taking building on one and two, so steering into hard truths, uh, having you know just a ton of customer conversation, being obsessed with customer conversations. The third one feels like just a fearlessness when it comes to pivoting and pivoting hard. You know, so once you think you've got your gap. You just you know leave caution to the wind and hit it with everything you've got. No, no halfway. Um, and then the fourth one, which is a kind of a repeated theme, but it, it feels you know hardware is hard. And one of your takes on it that I like is in those early days, make it a little bit easier on yourself by bringing the customer in as a partner because things aren't going to go perfect. And this way, people don't feel misled. They, it seems like you're saying they're going to fe- they they may feel high probability they will feel much more uh, forgiving and receptive to unexpected uh, turbulence. It, uh, do those four characterize it? Uh, your kind of story, you think? I think you summed it up perfectly. I don't. I couldn't have done it better myself, right? All right. Well, so so you guys are doing some huge things. Um, we're huge fans uh, here on the show. Listeners from the Futility episode will, of course, remember that uh, that you guys got a shout out from them. Um, so you've got some some fans out here in the industry. What's next for Tether? What does the rest of this year look like and beyond? So essentially, what we want to do is become the Fitbit or Whoop for your for your building, right? So our core focuses as a company are on health pocket and planet, meaning from a health perspective, we care about the indoor environmental quality of a building and how it impacts on people's lives. From a pocket point of view, we, co- we, we talk about efficiency of a building, what it costs to run, how efficient it, it is from an electricity, water consumption, basic utility 
perspective. And then from a planet point of view, we're talking about what is the impact of that uh, that building on the planet, meaning embodied, operational, and end-of-life carbon calculations. And from our perspective, if you can combine those three, health, pocket, planet, and provide a one-size-fits-all platform with all of the sensors and things needed so that the user experiences that any individual, whether it's the building owner or the maintenance manager or just someone who frequents that building, often can get an insight that's meaningful to them. That's the experience that we want to basically control in the future. We've honed in on health, and that's gone really, really well. Um, and the next phase of our development over the next six months to a year will be around uh, energy efficiency, and, uh, and the planet's planet piece around operational carbon. A couple more years and you'll see a far, far uh, more comprehensive platform that, that focuses in on, on those three things. I love it. I think that's, uh, we talked about gaps in the marketplace. That feels like a big one to me, you know, just a really comprehensive platform that pulls it together. Um, next question, you know, you, we, we talked about Vutility. Um, wh- who are some folks that you guys like out here in the world of IoT? Yeah, well, um, Utility is obviously one of them. They're a partner of ours. We use uh, some of the hardware as well to integrate energy data into our platform. We're, we're a huge fan of what they've done. We think their hot drop device is fantastic. So, you know, huge, huge shout out to uh, Matt Barber and the team at Utility. Uh, I mentioned the Fitbit or Whoop for your home as well. I'm a huge fan of Whoop. I'm wearing my Whoop strap right now. Um, and I, I love their model. I love how, you know, how they've, they've structured the, um, the subscription model around the hardware and the insights that the hardware gives you. I've, I've worn Apple watches and a whole bunch of other things in my day. And, and the Whoop is the thing I'm enjoying the most at the moment. And then there's another company we work with in New Zealand called Drone Deploy which I'm a big fan of. Uh, they're doing a lot of work in the construction industry, deploying things like Spot the Dog to understand you know, how um, BIM modeling works and to provide a whole bunch of construction insight, which is saving customers hundreds of thousands of dollars, which I think is, is pretty awesome. Those would probably be my top three at the moment that I've got eyes on, uh, but I'm pretty close to all of them. Cool. And uh, last question. Nobody ever says TikTok, but uh, maybe this will be maybe that'll change here for folks that, that, you know, love the episode. They want to keep up with the story. They want to keep up with your story. What's a good spot for folks to follow along? Definitely TikTok. No, joking. <laughs> LinkedIn is my space. Um, um, yeah, I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. So if anybody wants to reach out, uh, I don't know if you'll have links to to my LinkedIn um, profile somewhere on the show notes or whatever, but just reach out to Brandon from Bloke and, and that's where you can reach out if you want to ask me any questions. We will definitely link to it in the comments section um, when we uh, release this episode um, and make sure that folks get connected. Uh, Brandon, thank you so much for joining us today. Absolute pleasure. Thanks, Ryan. Over the Air is brought to you by Very. To find out more about us, head over to verypossible.com and make sure to search for Over the Air and Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else great podcasts are found. Don't forget to click subscribe to ensure you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Very, thanks for listening.